Please rise for the reading of God's Word. The sermon text today is from Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the Word of God. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will mediate for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let's walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God and all God's people said, you may be seated. Happy New Year. It is Advent again. And by the time Advent comes around each year, we have already been primed by our culture for some big event. Catalogs and email blasts arrive in our mailboxes, in our inboxes, showing us pictures of happy families in matching pajamas, dancing, or enjoying a quiet quiet moment together around a well-stocked Christmas tree and a fire. Commercials incessantly splash across our screens, promising love and contentment in the form of new gadgets or Christmas vacations. We carefully curate our own social media posts to ensure that the images of our lives are in step with these cultural expectations of the season. Store displays evoke nostalgia for childhood wonder. We are invited to lean in together toward this coming big event when fantasies will be fulfilled and dreams may yet come true. As Christians we have the task of living and speaking the biblical message of gospel truth in the face of such a cultural situation, a message that is both faithful to the scriptural witness and at the same time responsive to the deep and true needs of people who are longing for something big and meaningful in their lives. The temptation for some of us, like me, is to take the easy road of simple assault against the cultural and commercial messages inundating our lives. But this is indeed too simplistic and not helpful. Yes, our culture is celebrating a giddy, shallow, quasi-religious, overhyped, pseudo-Christmas, while some of us are attempting the more serious task of observing a holy, contemplative advent. But the reason the cultural messages are so powerful and the temptation to participate in them and connect at some level with them is so strong is that our human yearning for something meaningful is so real and so profound. We all must acknowledge this, this advent. In our text today, Isaiah holds up a vision of what is true. 
He takes us to a mountain and shows us what our hearts are actually tuned for. This vision has a context. Some conscientious readers of Isaiah are led to think that there are actually two beginnings to the book. Look back at verse 1 if you have your Bibles open. Look look back at at verse 1 of chapter 1. Chapter 1 begins with the words, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then look again at Isaiah 2, verse 1, which we just read, which says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It seems to some that in the final editing of the book, the publisher forgot to highlight and delete the redundancy here. How could they miss it? But this approach represents a strong tendency, I think, among many who come to the book of Isaiah, and indeed the Bible itself, with false expectations and wrong-headed presuppositions about its nature, how it is put together, and what it offers to us. Sometimes in our attempt to understand, we are simply asking the wrong questions of the text. The question isn't, why is there two of the same introductions or similar introductions? A better approach is to accept these strikingly similar opening verses to chapter 1 and chapter 2 as inspired holy writ, and then to ponder why they come to us in this manner. In our quest to make sense of this, we notice that the contrast between the two chapters is very strong. If you're going to read through the book of Isaiah for Advent, um, you'll you'll be reading uh, through chapter 1 tomorrow, uh, and so you'll get to see some of what I'm talking about here. But reflected in Isaiah 1 is a scene of unbroken doom and gloom. The judgment of God against Judah for wickedness, its wickedness and injustice, is described in excruciating detail. It just keeps going. You wonder when it's going to end. Cities are laid bare. Vineyards uprooted. Princes dethroned. All as a result of God's wrath. The end of chapter 1 is smoky, it's dark, and it's wretched. Hear the words of Isaiah 1, 30 uh, through 31 toward the end of the first chapter. For you, Jerusalem shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. This is how chapter 1 ends. This is where chapter 2 picks up. Then in chapter 2 we begin again. And this fits the divine motif in Scripture of decreation and recreation. God has destroyed the world in chapter 1. He now recreates it in chapter 2. It's a fresh start with a decidedly fresh message. Now instead of being a burning ash heap, the house of the Lord sits on the highest of mountains. All the nations of the world flow upward toward that house. And the word of the Lord flows down and blesses the nations. This is the image that Isaiah saw. This is his vision that God gave him. Rather than being the result of the carelessness of some final editor, 
These two adjacent prophetic words in chapter 1 and chapter 2 deliver a strong rhetorical blow that demonstrates a very high degree of literary intent. Against the backdrop of chapter 1, a chapter of ominous shadows, the beginning of chapter 2 here describes the universal reach of God's gracious activity. The juxtaposition of these two beginnings of the book of Isaiah is powerful. But it's not the only literary artistry that emphasizes God's divine purposes here. We must look and listen to hear. In addition to this, there is considerable movement in this text. Think about it. The mountain will be raised up. People will go upward. God's word extends downward. The nations will beat their swords and spears into agricultural tools that will be dug into the ground. The interesting images of going up and going forth suggest that the nations are drawn to the house of the Lord and that God's blessings cascade down to all nations. The images suggest flow and abundance. This imagery provokes in us, or should, fancies of a well-watered mountain garden with a temple because God is there. Does that remind you of any other garden you know of in the Bible? There is no one in this new world that Isaiah sees who can hide from the word of God that goes forth from it. It extends to all the earth. It is utterly effective in accomplishing its purposes of peace and flourishing. Taken together, the two headings of chapter 1 and chapter 2 alert us again to the comprehensive nature of the vision the book of Isaiah contains through the whole, through the whole. This is setting us up to understand the whole of the book of Isaiah. Temporarily, it moves between twin poles of the days of Uzziah, which is talked about in the first chapter, and then the last days, which begin at the beginning of chapter 2. So we have these twin poles of the here and now and the there and then. Nationally, it is centered, centered on Judah and Jerusalem, And this opening unit of chapter 2 completes a movement which anticipates the movement of the whole book from the Zion that is in Jerusalem now in Isaiah's day to the Zion that will be. And the one thing that stands between these two iterations of Zion is purifying judgment. It speaks of mountains, in particular one mountain. And mountains are very important in the Bible. They played an important part in the religions of Israel's neighbors and in Israel's uh, worldview. They were the points where heaven and earth were thought to meet a matrix of heaven and earth and were therefore highly favored as sites for altars and temples. The Canaanites worshipped their gods at the high places, we are told, and these became a snare to the Israelites time and again. Even when such high places were removed from within Israel's borders in times of religious reform, the surrounding nations continued to worship their gods on their holy mountains. Isaiah here envisions the day when one holy mountain will stand supreme, reducing all others to utter insignificance. In this sense, Isaiah's vision is exclusive. One mountain. It is also inclusive in another sense, because it forecasts that all nations and many peoples will come to Zion to share with Israel 
in, in the blessings of the Lord's rule. Finally, it is a vision of universal peace, described in terms which have reverberated down through the centuries. But Isaiah sees that this peace will become a reality only when the nations are willing to submit to that word that goes forth from Zion, where the one true God has revealed himself. Peace on any other terms than this is a cruel delusion, a truth we need to bear in mind constantly as we seek to be faithful to God's word in our own modern context of religious pluralism so powerfully demonstrated at Christmas time. The mountain of the Lord, then, is a symbol of the coming kingdom of God in which a purified and restored Zion is destined to play a crucial role. And in the culminating injunction of our text today, Isaiah summons his contemporaries to live now in light of that glorious prospect. And this, too, is our charge as we await the second advent of our messianic king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah was not blind to present realities. He spoke out against injustice, faithless politics, and hypocritical religion with a passion and rhetorical skill that few could match today. But it was this vision of the future which inspired him. Religion for him was never an escape from reality, but the source from which he drew the strength he needed to face it squarely and with truth. It is the model for how we must live, too. He shows that God's presence, by God's own initiative, will become more evident and compelling. The Lord's house will be established as the highest of the mountains, and the nations will stream to it. People everywhere will be drawn to God from all nations, all cultures, all races. They will converge out of a shared desire for divine instruction. Here is a revolutionary contrast to current complacency and cynicism. How radical a promise is this, that we will all seek God together and God will be present with us in Christ. Here Isaiah is declaring that one day we can quit trying to get on by scraps and remembrances and reproductions of spiritual experiences. God's presence will be made fully manifest with His people. God's house will be established and we shall stream to it. We will press toward it together to be taught and to be changed. Then the word of the Lord will go forth, and from that word will come justice. God will judge between the nations, and He will settle disputes once and for all. The word of the Lord will make an actual difference in the way the world works. Inequalities will be balanced. Shackles will be loosed. Wrongs will be set right. Out of this justice will come transformation. Weapons of violence will be turned into instruments of nourishment. The nations will put their swords down and will not train for war anymore. This is a glorious vision. Consumerist visions of the good life may seem to prevail in our culture at this time of year especially. But Isaiah's prophecy will stand up to any of them. This picture of unity, of justice, of solidarity of purpose and identity, of shared openness to the way of the Lord, of true peace, the shalom of God, speaks to some of our deepest hopes and longings. 
below the culturally driven anticipation of some shallow and vague big event are deeper yearnings in us that lie waiting to be fulfilled. How might the many pictures of happy families and yuletide gatherings actually speak to something real, like the desire for harmony across many divisions? How might the nostalgia for Christmas time past and the idolization of childhood wonder represent our desire to believe again in things that seem impossible to us as adults, like peace on earth and goodwill toward men? When penetrated, these yearnings may reveal something raw and disillusioned in us. This is unsettling. As much as we may long for a day when weapons are laid down, hearts are transformed, and peoples are drawn together, we find it hard to believe that such a day will actually come. Even to speak of the end of time, or a time beyond time, when God will set everything right, is a stretch for many of us. We turn around. And we go home to a mounting stack of bills on the desk, a wayward child, the death of a dream or a loved one. We go home to marital strain, gripping addiction, or pervasive spiritual apathy. Isaiah's vision seems preposterous when balanced against these realities of life. Now, I've been labeled an idealist more times than I can shake a stick at. But it seems to me that I am in good company with Isaiah. He announces that this remarkable idealistic transformation will take place in days to come. The phrase in days to come may not be very specific here, but it does imply that such transformation will come within history. I submit to you this morning that it is so much easier to pin our hopes on Christmas gifts and holiday feasts than it is to open ourselves to the possibility of believing in the seemingly impossible. We have been disappointed so many times by failed peace treaties abroad and by divisions within our own culture and by divisions and fractured relationships within our own homes and families. We know firsthand the uh, the destruction that conflict inflicts on us even if we have never lifted an actual sword. We must, with total transparency and frankness, acknowledge the reality of disillusionment and disappointment in this life, understanding that these apply not only to the lofty ideas of world peace, but also to some of the most intimate relationships in this congregation today. As Christmas approaches, some of us will be feeling these tensions and losses acutely. It is important for us to be honest about these realities and attentive to the fact that happy visions of hope can make old wounds throb. Like Isaiah, though, we must first acknowledge the reality of life on the ground if we are to fully embrace the vision of God's victory. The meaning of this text reaches far beyond the longings for martial disarmament and universal peace as deep and profound as those longings are in us. In the lectionary readings for today, this text sits in juxtaposition with Romans 13 and Matthew 24, which Elder Alders read earlier. The Romans 13 text sounds notes of urgency. Listen, Listen to it. For salvation is nearer to us now 
than when we became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near, Paul says. And then the Matthew text from Matthew 24 warns that the timing of the Lord's return is inexplicable and famously forecast eschatological surprises. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Or at least that's how we read it. But when we read in concert with these other lectionary texts for the day, our text in Isaiah 2 reveals God's character and intent for the resurrection of our hopes. The primary meaning of Isaiah's vision as revealing the determined, gracious intent of God for all nations means that it is not a text of mere future prediction. Often uh, congregations continue to assume that Old Testament prophecy is merely a window into the future. The scope of this text is much wider. The text is a breathtaking restatement of God's ongoing promises that he made to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and David. God promises that he will bless his faithful people to be a blessing to the nations and that he will protect the people of Israel for the sake of his own mission and glory in the world. Christians understand that this promise is extended to them through Jesus Christ. For them too, God will bless the church to be a blessing to all people and God will be faithful to the church for the sake of his own mission and glory in the world. We should take great consolation in this promise. Advent hope is not a yearly exercise of playing pretend. Instead, Advent hope is fully aware of what was, what is, and what is to come. Theologian Ted Smith once said, quote, For when we are willing to say that we have lived in latter days, indeed, that we live in them now, when we are willing to say that God met Israel, kept his covenant in both the first and second temples, even if they were ultimately destroyed, when we are willing to say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, even if we ultimately killed that word, when we are willing to say that Christmas has already come, really come to this world in which we live now, then our hope begins to deepen. Our hope becomes something other than wishful fulfillment. It is for a God whose love for us only deepens in our rejection of that love. It is for a prince of peace who reigns even in the midst of war and rumors of war. Our text, which is set immediately after a description of vast and total destruction, expands our understanding of hope. Christian, against all evidence to the contrary, we, because we're in Christ, have hope and we walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for challenging our shallow assumptions about the world and about your purposes. We thank you for teaching us and instructing us anew and afresh about the truth of the gospel and what it means for us and for your world. Lord, show us how we may go forth today to live according to these promises, to believe, to have faith and trust and confidence in a God who keeps his promises and who will protect his people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Embracing the paradox of the imminence of God's future kingdom is the key to living well before Him now. The promised kingdom of God has been inaugurated in the first advent of the Messianic King, Jesus Christ, and will be fully consummated at His second advent. And here we stand, or sit, between those two great defining moments of history. What shall we do? How shall we then live? This is a question for Advent. It is actually much less an inquiry about the calendar and much more of a yearning to hear again the promises of God. The Advent theme strikes close to the heart of followers of Jesus. It is that relentless spirit that can, that can be answered only by our hope in Christ. It is a longing that can be soothed only by the comfort of our future in God secured in Christ. The Advent plea comes with a desire for God to teach us again and again and again His ways. That once again, God would lead us in His paths of righteousness and peace. Yes, even today. In the end, what Isaiah offers us is not only a vision of global transformation, it is that, but an invitation to live toward that day here and now. Verse 5 says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We're not waiting for anything. It's here. Let's walk in the light of the Lord now because these things are true. Jesus Christ is the light of the world and the one in whom we rest our confidence. The Gospel of John tells us that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He goes on to say that in Jesus, the God-man, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, indeed has come. As baptized followers of Jesus Christ, who have the victory of life and light, let us commit ourselves afresh to walk in the light of the Lord today, together, standing firm on the sure word of his resurrection hope. Amen. Lord of the cloud by day and fire by night, our hands clutch the pilgrim's staff. Our march is Zionward. Our eyes are set toward the coming of the Lord. Our hearts are in your hands without reserve. You have created us, redeemed us, renewed us, captured us, and conquered us. And now, O God, send us forth once again on our pilgrim path through the world with all the confidence of the protective providence and presence of the Spirit of Christ. For he, our leader, has walked this road before us and has assured us with the seal of his love that nothing can separate us from him. May we walk in the light of the Lord this coming week, led by Christ our light, in whose name we pray. Amen. this benediction from 1 Timothy 6. Now to him who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen.